Amen. Please take your seats. Wonderful. If you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. I want to speak to you tonight on the subject of pleading the blood. Pleading the blood. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place for them in nor was a place found for them in heaven anymore. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth. And the angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast out. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives even unto death. This is a powerful passage because it tells us about salvation history. It takes us right back, even before the fall of man. We see the picture of the fall of Satan and a third of his angels that were cast out of heaven. Satan was a cherub, or is a cherub. He's a fallen cherub. That is a specific type of angel to do with covering and guarding the very glory of God. Uh, can I have a little bit more on it? Uh, glory of God. And um, he tried to become like God. That's how powerful he was. I mean, people say, oh, the devil must have been foolish to try and rebel against God. True. But also, he must have been pretty powerful to even think he could do it. Pretty powerful amongst the angels. We see this rebellion that took place. And that Michael, an archangel of God, and his angels fought. There was a war going on in the heavenlies. And Satan did not prevail, and they were cast down. Serpent, the devil, Satan, who deceives the old wo whole world. He was cast down to earth, and that's where he's been warring ever since. He managed to deceive Adam and Eve and bring down the whole race, human race, and that's where the battle is. And then in verse 10, we hear the story of salvation. A loud voice saying, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. So now we see that the kingdom of God has also invaded the earth, specifically through the Son of God, whose first message when he was anointed by the Holy Spirit was repent, turn around, because the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he spent three years demonstrating the kingdom. He preached kingdom truths. He cast out devils. He healed the sick. He brought in miraculous provision. Everything he did was a divine kingdom invasion into a fallen world. And then, of course, the greatest thing that he did was die on the cross and shed his blood for our sins. And because of this power, the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ have come, for the accuser of the brethren has been 
who accuses them before God has been cast down. And then now we get the picture in verse 11 of us. This is where we fit in, the believers. And it says, they, that's us, overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. So we see this heavenly battle where Satan is cast out. Then we see this earthly battle where Jesus comes to bring the kingdom of God and to invade the kingdom of darkness on earth. And then we see the continued battle where we as believers are involved in an overcoming ministry where we overcome the works of the enemy. Not only in our lives, but the works of the enemy on earth. We overcome him. It, it, it's like, it's like when, when an enemy is overrun and, and they're trying to defend their little fortress, but there's just too many of, 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 the, of, of the opposing forces and it's like broken arrow, I think they, they call it. The, the enemy are, are overrunning them, they're in there. Well, that's what we're called to do, to overcome the enemy. Now, how do we overcome the enemy? There's many ways, but... Here in Revelation, we're given the key. We overcome the enemy by the word of our testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. I want to focus on the blood of the Lamb tonight and the importance of the power of Christ's blood. But here we also see this picture of testimony. I'll just refer to that, although I don't want to go down that line tonight. The testimony... First of all, this Bible is the book of God's testimony. Do you know that? This Bible is the testimony of God. A true and accurate testimony of who God is, what God has done. From Genesis to Revelation, we have testimonies. You know, one of, one of the things that was uh, strong in Pentecostal circles was testimony time. And, and we often in our conferences will look for key testimonies. And those testimonies were important because we read in the Bible what God has, God has done and what God promises to do. And then when you give your testimony, you're giving testimony that the God of the Bible lives today and is working in your life. And that encourages other people tremendously. So this book, this book is the testimony. You know, when the Ark of the Covenant was created... One of the things they put in that ark was the book of the testimony of what God had done with God's people up to that point. They put the book of the testimony in there. So the Bible is the word of God. The Bible is the testimony that we overcome the devil with. But also it's our testimony and your testimony to one another of what God has done. Because the root word, the root Hebrew word, the root Hebrew word for testimony, talks about doing it again. Doing it again. So when you give your testimony, we're saying the God who did this for me can do it for you. He can do it again. And so the Bible is talking about God and the great acts that he did in the Old Testament. But the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament hasn't changed, has he? He is the same yesterday, today and forever. So when we look at what God did in the Old Testament, we can say, God, do it again where it's needed. When we look at what God did in the New Testament, we say, Lord, do it again, do it again. You've not changed. In times of trial and difficulty, we can go to the word of God's testimony and see that God never forsook his, ch his children or his people. 
that God came through again and again and again, no matter what they went through. God came through. And we can say that's a testimony. We can apply it to our lives and our situations. Lord, do it again. Do it again. But I want to focus on this aspect. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and what that, what that means. The blood of Jesus is what is almost a forgotten teaching in the church today. A hundred years ago and going backwards into some of the great revivals like the Wesleyan revivals, the blood of Christ was very important. In fact, it was at the heart of the Christian faith. Not just the cross, but the blood that was shed on the cross. And the Wesley would write hymns about the blood and, and all these songs that came and hymns that came with glory about the blood and the crimson flow and being washed in the blood. And it was common terminology, the blood of Jesus. But recently in church history and in the evangelical world, there has been an attempt to sanitize the death of Christ to a place where it's almost a bloodless sacrifice. In fact, many modern versions, liberal evangelical versions of the Bible, have adapted the New Testament to try and get away from the blood of Jesus and what the blood of Jesus does and how it appeases the wrath of God and the anger of God. People are very happy to talk about the death of Christ, very happy to talk about the cross of Christ, but not many people today in many pulpits, at least in Europe, are people prepared to emphasize and talk about the actual, physical, shed blood of Jesus and what it does for us. But actually, the shed blood of Jesus is, well, it shouldn't be a secret, it is at the moment, but the shed blood of Jesus is, at the moment, the hidden secret of power in the evangelical world. If you understand the blood of Jesus, what it does to God, and what it does to us, and what it does to, the sa to Satan, your life will never be the same. And that's why we should plead the blood of Jesus. Pleading the blood of Jesus is a phrase that is linked to the early Pentecostals who would often plead the blood of Jesus. And sometimes that pleading got a little bit of a tradition itself. People were pleading the blood over this and pleading bl the blood over that. And especially in deliverance situations, they would plead the blood. But if you actually sat down and spoke to some of them about what does it mean to plead the blood, they probably wouldn't know. It was just something that they were used to doing in the church that they were brought up. That type of tradition, it's not around much today, but that has no power. Uh, the power of pleading the blood is to understand what part the blood plays in our salvation and how that blood has power. We speak, we sing even today sometimes about there is power in the blood of Jesus. But like I said, most people just think that the blood of Jesus is simply a shorthand uh, way of referring to the death of Christ. It's more powerful than that. You see, in the Old Testament, it was the blood that meant everything in the sacrifice. You know, when we look at the tabernacle and the sacrifices that took place after Moses, uh, it wasn't enough to kill a lamb. It wasn't enough to kill a bull. You, you couldn't take a bull and sacrifice it and say, there, done, job done, God. Priests couldn't do that. Couldn't take a lamb and sacrifice it, so job done, God, we killed it over there. Or a goat and kill it and say, God, we killed a goat. It wasn't enough. 
The death of an animal was not enough for the sacrificial system. You had to take the blood to the altar. It wasn't enough. If a priest had slain a bull or slain a, 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 a lamb and not taken the blood to the altar, that sacrifice would not have availed. We know that the Bible speaks about the fact that God said that the life was in the blood. And that the sacrifice and the part of the sacrifice that allowed God's mercy to flow and that brought humankind into, back into relationship with God, the part of that sacrifice was blood. We see this echoed in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The blood of Jesus is a commodity. It has purchasing power. Through the blood we were redeemed. We were bought back, not just by Christ's death, but by the blood of Jesus. Ephesians 2.13, but now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus allows humankind, sinful humankind, to come close to God. How about this, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Blood speaks. If we go, for example, to Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, and I want to go there for a moment. Cain has slain Abel. And um, Genesis 4, 8 but Abel's blood is speaking. Even though Abel is dead, Abel's blood still speaks. Abel's blood is having an effect on God. Now, Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass that when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. Isn't that amazing? Abel was dead, but his blood still had power. His physical blood, spilled on the ground, was speaking to God. And what was it speaking to God for? It was speaking to God, and its language was one of justice. Its language was one of vengeance. Well, if we go to Hebrews 12... We have this reference to Abel's blood, but then it's compared with Jesus' blood. So that's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. That's profound. Because I feel like, in some ways, I'm preaching on virgin territory tonight because there's such a lack of understanding 
about the importance of the blood of Jesus. But here we see that the blood of Jesus is speaking. Just like the blood of Abel spoke to God, God heard the blood of Abel, responded to the blood of Abel, and held Cain account because of the blood of Abel. So here it says that Jesus is the mediator of a brand new covenant and to the blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. This is why at the heart of the Christian faith is the communion service in all its different forms and ways of, of doing it. And Jesus said, do this as often as you remember me. And he spoke about his body, but he, he gave thanks. And when he gave the cup, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. And whenever you take that wine or that juice, whether it be in a cell group or in a congregational service, and that juice touches your lips, it's red. What is it a reminder of? It's a reminder of real blood. Real blood shed by the real God-man and that that blood is speaking. The blood of Jesus has never lost its power. The blood that was shed by Christ on the cross as the blood dripped from his hands and his feet and his side and his head onto the ground, when that blood hit the ground, it started talking, my friend. If Cain, if Abel's blood can talk, we found here in Hebrews, Christ's blood talked. And the moment it was shed, it wasn't speaking while it was in Jesus' body. While Jesus was walking around healing the sick, teaching, the blood wasn't speaking then. Why? Because the blood wasn't shed at that point. This is the point about sacrifice. The power of the blood of sacrifice in the Old Testament and New Testament, it's always about shed blood. Some animal or somebody's got to pay the sacrifice that brings the shed blood. It's the shed blood of Abel that spoke. Abel's blood did not speak to God while he was walking on the earth. It was when his life was taken, his blood was shed, and it was spilled on the ground, it began talking. When Christ's blood was spilled, when it was shed, it began speaking. That's what Hebrew says. It speaks, not it spoke. It speaks of better things. And the moment that blood was shed, it began to speak to the Father. And it's still speaking to the Father today. What's it speaking of? The new covenant shed in my blood for remission of sins. The only way for sins to be forgiven, in God's view, is for blood to be shed. Someone's got to pay the price for our sin. Someone's got to pay the punishment for our sin. God can't let sin go or he wouldn't be God. Be like some judge just saying to the criminals, well, I feel in a kind mood today, so all you rapists, murderers, thieves, you can just go off today. No penalty. There will be an outcry. People even in the fallen world would say, this is totally unjust and there would be great anger. And like there is today, if, if, the, if society perceives that a judge has let somebody off lightly for a heinous crime, there is an outcry, isn't there? You pick up the tabloids and there, there's anger and there's fury about, about this. Well, God, God is more righteous than any editor of the Sun or the Daily Mail or, or, or even ourselves. And so he was more righteously indignant and angry against sin than you could ever possibly imagine. This isn't a God that flies off the hang handle or got some sort of anger management problem. 
But the wrath of God, which Romans says is revealed against all ungodliness, even today, the wrath of God is God's measured, just response against human sin. And God is perfectly holy in every way. We're not. We're, we were born into a fallen world. Uh, we see things very often in shades of grey. But God is pure, brilliant white. And so even the slightest stain that we wouldn't even consider probably even being sin, even the slightest stain to a perfectly pure God is worthy of eternal judgment and wrath. We have to understand God is not as we are. God is great. God is high. God is pure in every way. And so God has determined right from the beginning when Adam and Eve fell, the only way they could have a response with him is God took the first animal and the first being to physically die and he slayed that animal and he put a bloody uh, skin upon them. It must have shocked them. They, they didn't know what death was. They were vegetarians. They'd been pronounced spiritually dead, but they'd never killed anything. God killed the first animal and that blood covered Adam and Eve and allowed there to be some sort of relationship right from the beginning Blood has always been the seal of the covenant or the signature of a covenant. Without blood, there was never a covenant between God and man in the Old Testament. And the same in the New Testament. But this time, the blood of the covenant was shed by God's own dear Son. He shed his blood and died for us so that we would not be punished. He took our place. And instead of us suffering, he suffered and his blood now speaks to the Father. Mercy, peace, forgiveness, grace, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You know, wherever the blood of, of God is being applied and honoured and believed in, wherever the blood of Jesus is being honoured, there you'll find the Holy Spirit. Why didn't the Holy Spirit fall on the day of resurrection? Wasn't it all done? Jesus had died, he'd been vindicated, he'd risen again, conquering death, so that we who face death in, in our lives know that one day we will be raised from the dead. Why didn't the Holy Spirit come on the day of resurrection on the disciples? Or the next day, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit won't come to you, in John, until I have gone to my Father. Why did he need to go to his Father in order for the Holy Spirit to be poured out? The beautiful thing about Hebrews is that Hebrews in the New Testament really gives us a great explanation of the power of the blood of Jesus. Here's Hebrews in a potted version. The beginning of Hebrews, we find a group of Jewish believers that are thinking about backsliding. They're thinking about the pressure that they're under and they're thinking, you know, I don't know if it's worth it following Jesus as Messiah. Maybe we should go back to the old synagogues and the old covenant. And so the, book of, the author of Hebrews is saying, don't you understand? Jesus is so much better. A better covenant. And then he warns them not to be like the children of Israel that wandered around in the desert and refused to believe God and the Holy Spirit when he said, today is the day of your salvation. Hear what the Spirit is saying. And then after that, we see that there is a promise of God that Abraham believes in Hebrews. A promise that God is going to come through. 
that God is going to fulfill his, co his covenant. And then once that's established, the promise, we get a whole section in Hebrews, and it's from Hebrews chapter 7 right through to 11, and it's all about the blood of Jesus and the new priesthood of Christ. It echoes back to the Old Testament, which is a scale model, an earthly scale model of heavenly realities. It's like Westfield. You know Westfield over there? Well, I remember when Westfield was just a wasteland. And they, they made a scale model on a big table of what Westfield would look like. It was a scale model. And you could see what the buildings would look like. They had model trees and model people. It was a scaled down model of the reality that was yet to be built. Well, now, we don't need that model because we can go and walk around Westfield shopping whenever we want. Well, the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of the Old Testament and the blood of lamb and sacrifices, all those things were a scaled earthly model of heavenly realities. I haven't got time to do it tonight, but when you go through Hebrews 7, 8, 9, 10, it shows you that the model of the, earth, of the earthly tabernacle is a picture of things that are eternal in heaven. And so we find, for example... In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, it says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Hebrews 9, 11, that's heaven. Not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal, eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's just stay there and move down a few passages to verse 16. For where there is a testament or a covenant or a contract, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead. This is speaking about a will and testament. Since it has no power all the while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded. Then likewise he sprinkled the blood with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than this. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. 
not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He would then have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Uh, so we're getting a picture there anyway. So we're getting a picture of Jesus' blood. The reason that the Holy Spirit was not poured out on the day of resurrection or the day after that is because Jesus had not ascended into heaven and taken his blood into the holies of holies in heaven. Not some temple in Jerusalem, but where the Father was. And so when Jesus ascended into heaven, according to Hebrews at his ascension, he took his blood and he took it before the Father. And when the Father saw the blood, and the Spirit saw the blood, the Holy Spirit was poured out. The promise of the Father was poured out. And when the Spirit saw the blood of Jesus in the Holy of Holies, speaking on your behalf, speaking your name, as it were, speaking my name, when the Father saw the blood, and the Spirit saw the blood, the Holy Spirit came down out of the holies of holies of heaven and fell on those people on the day of Pentecost. That's how power... You see, the Holy Spirit answers to the blood. Now, this is all background, and we could go a lot deeper into these things about the blood of Jesus uh, speaking and continuing to speak. But the blood of Jesus is, is powerful, not just because the moment you apply it to your life, you're saved forevermore. There's a wonderful picture of the blood of the Lamb or the blood of Jesus in the, in, the, in the story of Exodus, isn't there? Do you remember? I mean, and this is an interesting story. Let me give it from this slant. It was almost like nothing could deliver the people of the children of Israel. Almost. God knew what he was doing, but go with me. It was like this plague could not deliver them. That plague could not deliver them. Another plague could not deliver them. Whatever power God manifested on the earth, it just didn't seem to be powerful enough to deliver them from the hand of Pharaoh and deliver them into the place where they could go into the promised land. It just didn't seem powerful enough. Those ten plagues. And you think, you know, again and again, didn't, why was God doing this? Romans 9 says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In other words, God wanted there to be ten plagues. God expected his plagues not to deliver the children of Israel. Why? Because he was building on something. He was building on something. None of these plagues worked. But in the end, there was one thing that delivered the children of Israel, wasn't it? It was when the angel of death came. And God said, unless you let my people go, then every firstborn human being and every firstborn animal will be judged and will die, except those that take a lamb, a lamb for a household, take that lamb, sacrifice that lamb, but that's not enough, not enough, that won't save you, the death of a lamb will not save you, you have to take the shed blood. You take that shed blood and you put it outside the house on the doorpost, you apply it on the doorpost. And then when the angel of the Lord, the angel of judgment, comes on that night, when it's reckoning time, 
when the mercy of God on, e- on Egypt is finished. Because you say, well, you know, what do you mean the mercy of God? They were just, those, those, those plagues were merciful plagues by God. If Pharaoh had let them go to the, be- the beginning, they wouldn't have had the deaths at the end. But the time came when Pharaoh and Egypt were ripe for full judgment. They'd had all those signs and they disobeyed those signs. And then the angel came. And wherever the blood of the lamb was seen by the angel, the blood spoke to the angel of God. The blood spoke Passover. The blood spoke mercy. The blood spoke grace. And so as the angel of the Lord came across Eden, sweeping its shadow of death across that nation, wherever the angel saw the blood, the blood spoke. The blood of that lamb was powerful enough to prevent judgment and death. John the Baptist's message. John the Baptist's message. When he saw his cousin coming. Behold the Lamb of God. That taketh away the sins of the world. But you know. Unless that blood is applied to our lives. By faith. The angel of judgment will not pass over us. And when we die. We will be judged. When that blood, however, is applied, you say, how do I apply the blood of Jesus to my life? You believe. Faith is application. Faith. If you believe that Jesus died for you, shed his blood for you, and that that blood was accepted and that Christ rose again, if you truly believe that in your heart, then my friend, you have applied the blood of Jesus to your life. God will not only pass over you, but he will visit you now with the fellowship of his Holy Spirit and you will become his temple. Not only will you be saved, but you become a sanctified vessel for God the Holy Spirit to come and to live in you. So you apply the blood. But there's an ongoing application of the blood that we have to be aware of. Jesus, his blood speaks today. Jesus lives evermore to make intercession for us. Do you know that Jesus is praying for you? That's what he's done. Three years ministry, 2,000 years interceding for you. But the intercession is not just prayers. The intercession is based on his blood. Jesus, yes, I'm sure he's praying for us and speaking to the Father for us. Of course he is. But not only is he speaking, but he is speaking to his father on the basis of his shed blood. And you know what? God the Father cannot resist the blood of his son. The blood of Jesus is irresistible to his father. God can't resist it. It appeased his father. God sent, his, God sent his only son. You see, the wrath of God is revealed. God was angry. God was justly angry. Somebody had to do something about it. Somebody had to drink down every drop of judgment that was deserved by a fallen nation. Someone had to pay. And the father knew that and then he said, son, will you go? And the son said, I will go. God, this is love. Not that we loved God, but God loved us and sent his son for a propitiation. 
of our sins. What's propitiation? It means to appease the wrath of God, to calm the anger of God, to deal with the offense of God. And so when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood, it appeased, it took away the offense, it took away the righteous anger of God on all those that we've read were purchased by the blood. When you're bought by the blood, you're no longer under the judgment of God, but the blessing of God. Now, Jesus' blood is still speaking. But I also believe that God wants us to understand and utilize the blood of Jesus. Now, the blood of Jesus was shed once and for all. We don't need another sacrifice. The blood of Jesus was powerful enough to, to do everything that God intended it to do and intends it to do still. But we need to understand that there's power in the blood of Jesus for the believer. The saints in Revelation, how did they overcome the devil? By their testimony, the word of God, we spoke about that and what God's doing in their life and the present work of the Holy Spirit. But also it says they overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. Well, what does this mean? Well, this means that we understand that the blood has done something to God and that what we can do is we can appeal to the blood of, the blood of Jesus. We can make our appeal to it in times of prayer. When you go to the Father, when you come to the Father in the name of Jesus, you're actually coming in the power of his blood. Because the name of Jesus simply means everything that Jesus is, everything that he's done and everything that he's doing. And, and it's blood, it's a blood covenant. Without shedding of blood, there would be no salvation. This is the way that God works. So, for example, on Wednesday evening past, in our prayer meeting, we're praying for the elections and for the government. And we don't know, you know, you, you make your choice, I make your, our choice. We make our informed choices. You may vote for someone different to me. We do our best, don't we? But we were praying that God would not give us the government that we deserve. Because let me tell you something. If God gives us the, the government that we deserve, this nation's finished. Because we deserve the wrath of God. I tell you what, you read Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed, and there's a whole big list of what it's revealed against. It's a description of modern-day Europe. In, in exactly a description of modern-day Europe. The wrath of God is revealed. But we, we were praying, God, don't, don't deal with us according to your wrath. But Lord, deal with us according to the blood of Jesus. I was praying in my car one day. And I was seeking the Lord for the nation, as I often do, day by day. And I'm saying, God, have mercy on this nation. The wrath of God is revealed. So many people not saved. So many people not caring. So many people. Uh, it's like they've been given over three times God in Romans 1. What is God's judgment? It's not lightning bolts. It's not earthquakes. These aren't God's judgments. God's judgments is far worse than that, my friends. God's judgment is he simply gives you over to your sin. Three times in Romans 1, he gave them over to the... In other words, he says, that what you want? You don't want me? You want your sin? You think you can work it out with me? You want to be an atheist? You want to follow a false religion? Off you go. I won't intervene. That is the greatest judgment that could ever happen. I won't 
intervene. The greatest judgment that can happen to this nation is the non-intervention of God. Uh, the withdrawing of the Holy Spirit from intervening in our affairs. That's the greatest judgment. It's not some, you know, a hurricane, nothing. It would be terrible, of course. An earthquake, nothing. A volcano, nothing. That's nothing compared to the giving over of a nation by God. Taking his hands off and letting sin do the rest. No intervention. And I'm praying, and I begin to pray, Lord God, do not treat Great Britain according to its sins, I pray. Don't look on our sins. Instead, Lord, when you think of Great Britain, look at the blood of Jesus. Turn your eyes from our sin. And look not at our sin, but look at your son's blood. Shed 2,000 years that speaks better things. That speaks mercy. That speaks grace. That speaks divine compassion and intervention. Lord, look at the blood. Don't look at Great Britain today. Look at the blood. Look at the blood when you think of Great Britain. And then I, this thought, this prayer line flashed into my mind. You know people talk about rose-tinted glasses. Oh, you're looking at it with your rose-tinted glasses. In other words, you always look on the bright side, don't you? Your rose-tinted glasses. And something came to me as I was praying. I said, Lord... I'm not asking that you look at us with rose-tinted glasses because he sees exactly what we're like. We can't hide, can we? Don't look at us with rose-tinted glasses, God. But look at Great Britain and Europe with blood-tinted glasses. Blood-tinted glasses. What do I mean? I mean see us through the blood of Jesus. So Wednesday night and this Wednesday night, we're going back to the throne of God. We're going to ask God to look upon us and this nation through blood-tinted glasses. Because I know that if God looks on Europe through the blood of Jesus, intervention will come back. Grace will come. Mercy instead of judgment. The power of the gospel will come again. And hearts will be convicted of sin. And the blood of Jesus will come washing streams of the blood of Jesus. Waves of the blood of Jesus washing hundreds and thousands of people in convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Where the blood is, there the Spirit will come. Where the Spirit convicts, there the blood will be applied. I'm convinced that the blood of Jesus and, and our seeking God, we're in Christ. You know that, you're in Christ. We're seated in Christ in heavenly places. It's not our blood, it's Christ's blood, but we can go to God the Father and say, Lord, your blood. Lord, your blood. Father, your, the blood of your son speaks. We speak through that in his name. Blood. It's irresistible to the father. We keep speaking that blood, keep reminding him of that blood. You say, remind God of the blood. Yes. Yes. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, in the Old Testament... God would remember his people. He'd remember his people. And people would come to him, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget your people? They would say, how long, O oh Lord, must we suffer? How long, how long, how long, how long? And then when God would, 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 would intervene, it would say in, in the Old Testament in Scripture, it would say, and the Lord remembered the suffering and the cries of his people. 
the Lord would remember. Not that he's forgotten, you know what I'm saying? Because when the Lord remembers, it simply means he acts. When the Lord remembers, it's not that he's forgotten, but it seems to us he's forgotten. Eh? Let's have a look at the state of Great Britain. It looks like God's forgotten us. I don't, you say, oh, no, 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 God is love. God's not angry with Britain, really? Look at the evidence. Oh, no, no, God is a God of love. No, no, he's not a God of wrath. Really? Read Romans. The wrath of God is revealed alongside the gospel that has power to save. It's false teaching that somehow it doesn't matter anymore that, that God loves everybody. He does. But because he loves everybody, it doesn't matter. He's turned a blind eye. He's not worried. The evidence in Europe is the contrary. It does matter. Sin matters. The wrath of God is revealed. But what is going to stop the wrath of God being revealed in Great Britain is the same thing. It's the blood. The blood that will bring an appeasing. A blood that will bring grace. It's the blood. It's not a new blood. It's not a fresh sacrifice. It's not a new bull or a new goat or a new sheep or a new lamb. It's the lamb that was once slain 2,000 years ago. And when we start honoring the blood, praying in the light of the blood, speaking to the Father about the blood, then God is going to answer. And God is going to turn and pour out his power to save, not to damn. The blood has power. It's time for this generation of British Christians to wake up from a bloodless religion and get back to where the blood was shed. Real blood falling on the real ground, taken into the real heaven by the real Son of God, seen by the Father, accepted by the Father, and owned by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Where the blood is, that's where you'll find the Spirit. The promises of God, they're no good without the blood of God. That's the whole point. Jesus, all God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. In his blood. It's a sign, signed, sealed and delivered contract. A signed, sealed and delivered covenant. What, how much more could God seal his covenant than Put the ink of his own son upon it. Would you put the ink of your child on a contract? God forbid. <laughs> Makes you feel sick even thinking about it. You put the ink of your own child on a contract? Terrible thing. You'd be serious so, wouldn't you? God put the ink of his own son on his covenant, his new covenant. And when we celebrate communion, we've got to get away from this sort of softly, softly, mildly, here's a piece of cracker, here's a little bit of wine, here's a little bit of meditation. It's blood, my friend. When you take communion, it's not just a reminder to you, it's a bringing back to the throne of God. That's why communion is so powerful. It reminds you, but it also reminds God of his covenant and invites him to come again by the power of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit would bring the power of the blood. It's the Holy Spirit that applies the power of the blood in our lives and washes us and empowers us. The Holy Spirit loves the blood. The devil hates the blood. That's why we're going to overcome the enemy, because we're going to plead the blood. Not in some sort of like pleading, oh God, oh God. But we're going to boldly enter the... Th 
we can boldly go to the throne of God, Hebrews says. Boldly approach God. You see, the devil accuses us. The devil accuses us. He condemns us. He takes away our assurance, our boldness, and our confidence. That's what the devil does. He's called Satan, the accuser of the brethren. He seeks to undermine us and our faith. He seeks to pull the rug under our feet and call us to fall. But the Holy Spirit is the opposite to Satan. He's not the exact opposite. He's God Almighty. But the Holy Spirit, he doesn't come to accuse us. He comes to assure us. He speaks, Abba, Father. He gives us confidence. He gives us fellowship. He gives us partnership. He gives us strength. He gives us power. He gives us anointing and a clothing. The Holy Spirit does the exact opposite to what the enemy does. And the Holy Spirit does it because of the blood. And so when we're dealing with the enemy, it's the only thing he can't overcome. He can overcome religion. He can overcome Christians. But he can't overcome the blood. I mean, I know this is a preaching style, but can you imagine what the devil thought when the first drop of Jesus' blood hit the ground and began speaking? Oh my God. The devil thought he'd won. The devil thought he'd conquered. You're the son of God. Come down off the cross and save yourselves. No, Jesus didn't come down off the cross, but the blood came down off the cross, trickled onto the earth and began speaking. <laughs> speaking better things, speaking salvation with your name on it, speaking healing, speaking covenant, speaking blessing, speaking the defeat of the enemy. The devil is running riot. He knows his time is short. And he knows his time is short because the blood speaks against him. The blood speaks for us and everybody that's in the blood, everybody that's received Christ as Savior, the blood speaks, assures you, brings the Spirit. But the blood judges Satan. The blood itself speaks against Satan. We, can't, we don't have the power to deal with Satan, you and I. We're like, we're like lambs sent amongst wolves. We don't have any power in ourselves. None of us, even all of us together, if the whole church went up against Satan, he'd crush us by ourselves. We've got no power. But we have the blood. We have Christ's death. And we have the Spirit. And when we start preaching these things, Things are going to shift in the heavenlies and in our lives. We're going to find new power in prayer. We're going to find new confidence in the blood. We're going to find new assurance, new confidence. We're going to go back and say, the blood of Jesus, you know, it works every day. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and the blood of Jesus cleanses us, washes us. Isn't it wonderful? You're as pure before God as you're ever going to be. And when you fall down and you make mistakes, you don't have to stay there. Just get a fresh flow of Christ's blood from Calvary. It'll cleanse your soul. There's power in the blood of Jesus. Let's bow our heads in prayer. We're going to pray for the sick tonight. We're going to pray that the blood of Jesus not just be applied in our hearts for salvation, but that blood will come with power for healing and deliverance. I want to make sure that everybody in this room today 
has done what I was speaking about earlier, the children of Israel. It wasn't enough that the lamb died. They had to apply the lamb. When they took the lamb and believed God's word and put the blood on their doorpost, the angel of death passed over. That's why it's called Passover. If you believe in your heart today, you might not understand everything I've said, or maybe you've got many questions, all those things can be looked at, but in your heart you say, you know, I do believe that Jesus died for me. I do believe he shed his blood to pay for my sin. I do believe he, he rose again. I do believe he entered into the Holy of Holies of Heaven with his blood. And you want to be saved. And I'm going to pray for you right now, if that's you. I'm going to ask you to lift your hand up to signify to God and to me who's praying for you that you're making that decision. It's like applying the blood. You're putting your hand up. You're not ashamed. He wasn't ashamed of you when he died on the cross. So if that's you with every head bowed in prayer, just lift your hand right where you are. Yes. Up in the bow, just lift your hand. And that's the expression of your heart that you've applied the blood and because of Jesus, your sins though they may be many, are forgiven you. Is there anybody else? In the balcony. Anybody else? Don't, you know, you just one hand away and heart belief away from passing from darkness to light, from judgment to forgiveness. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, in the middle. He did it all. All you have to do is say, yes, I, I believe. I, I want this. And the blood of Jesus will wash away all sins and cause the Holy Spirit to come and to begin a work in your life. Is there anybody else who wants to walk out of this place blood-bought, blood-washed, blood saved. If you're in any doubt, lift your hand right now and be made sure. Anyone? Lady there as well. Let's just wait a moment on the Lord right where you are. Respond. This is real. The blood of Jesus is real. It's not symbolic. It's not just shorthand for the death of Christ. The blood of Jesus is real. And it's working and speaking. The whole Bible attests to the blood of Jesus. Maybe there's some area of your life where you need a breakthrough. Maybe you've been praying for a breakthrough. Maybe you need to go to the Father and Plead the blood, which is simply present, present the blood which has already been presented. Apply the blood in your prayer. This isn't something mystical. It's not something religious. It's simply acknowledging before God the power of sacrifice. We're a nation of priests. We're a nation of priests. We don't sacrifice animals. The sacrifice has been made. But as priests, we can still present to our God 
the blood of the one sacrifice of his son. We can go to the father as priest and say, Lord, Father, see the blood and answer our prayer. See the blood and have mercy. See the blood and bring healing. See the blood and bring restoration. See the blood and send your Holy Spirit. Look at us through blood-tinted glasses, the blood-tinted glasses of your son's sacrifice. I tell you, it's powerful. Blood is as powerful to God as it is to you. This is the thing. It's not, not just what the blood does for you. Listen to me. It's not just what the blood of Jesus does for you. It's what the blood of Jesus does to God. That's why we should take it to him, as it were, and say, Father, I plead the blood. Everything that Jesus did and died for me, and that shed blood, visit it with mercy visit us with grace why don't we just spend a few moments stand together meditate just let the Holy Spirit we preached on the blood tonight the Holy Spirit is here I believe he's ministering in some of your lives right now so let, let's just allow him to do that for a